if you wouldn't mind turning with me, we'll hop back into Acts chapter 18. We're going to wrap up chapter 18 today. It's on page 927 is where it starts in your pew Bibles if you're using them. Acts 18, verse 24, to the end of the chapter. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Yeah, so puzzle etiquette. Thank you for that intro, Phil, earlier. My family, uh, to answer that question for us, we we do enjoy puzzles. And and really, any kind of puzzles. Uh, I like crossword puzzles. Grace and Jemmy do Sudoku. Jacob likes doing Legos and working with wood, which is kind of similar. And, And really, even any of his video games. I mean, what are they but elaborate puzzles? Uh, But there's nothing quite like the traditional family jigsaw puzzle. They're great uh, because it's really the only puzzle we can all be involved with, right? Uh, But inevitably, someone puts in more work than the others. I won't say who. No, actually, no. It it depends, really, in in our house. But if you're from a puzzle-loving family, you know the frustration of having done most of the work, right? only to come down one day and find somebody else finished it, right? (laughs) If you've ever worked really hard on something, only to have someone else put the last piece in before you get there, it can feel like a small form of death, a a breach of puzzle etiquette, if you will. Uh, You've been really looking forward to the satisfaction, the glory of completing this thing. It started as a group project, sure, but it became your personal pet project somewhere along the way, and then someone else gets there ahead of you. It can be most vexing. And that's not just true with games and puzzles. I don't know about any of you. I I have a terrible habit of wanting to do everything for myself. I have pretty severe trust issues when it comes to projects. It applies to lots of things in the home because I hate hiring people. I hate spending money. And I don't trust the kids not to mess it up, and I fully expect Georgia to forget what I asked her about. And so um, I prefer to do it myself, even if that means it never gets done at all. This applies in workplace settings as well. I I was really, I was the worst when I was in the deli, because I didn't trust anyone to do anything. I I didn't trust them to clean the slicers, because nobody was going to be thorough enough. Uh, Or cleaning the fryer, same thing. Waiting on certain customers. We had a whole list of customers only I was allowed to wait on, because they were the types that were just hard to please. Uh, And one of the things I've had to learn over the years is that I'm not as indispensable as I think I am. Uh, And the fact is, every time I've walked away from any project, wondering how it will ever get done without me, somehow it all works out just fine. Uh, Even if there are hiccups, the world does not end in my absence. And in many cases, it thrives. 
These are comforting, albeit humbling, thoughts. But if it's true that I'm not as necessary as I think I am when it comes to my various little inconsequential projects uh, at home and at work, it is much more true in the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul has been learning this lesson again and again, uh, that the kingdom not only grows in spite of him, but even in his complete absence, right? And it's made clear again in today's passage. Uh, as we've seen before, Paul has had a, a personal goal, right, to reach the province of Asia for a long time, uh, for years. And, and the Holy Spirit slammed the door to Asia when the, the first time he tried to go, way back in chapter 16. In Luke's word, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And then Paul got this wonderful opportunity to share the gospel in Ephesus, which is the major city there, right after that haircut, right, and right before he reported back home to Antioch. And you may remember, he was received pretty well. And the people in Ephesus begged him to stay and tell them more, and he refused. But he promised to come back if and when God let him. And now, some upstart shows up while he's away. And I can't help but wonder if Paul would be tempted to feel about Apollos how I feel when someone else finishes the puzzle. Like, really, God? I, I was looking forward to this project. I've been put off of it twice, and now some totally random guy gets there ahead of me. Like, bruh. On the other hand, <laughs> for us, it, it, it is kind of nice, isn't it, to talk about a fresh face, Right? A guy not named Paul as we travel here through Acts. So today we get to meet this new guy, Apollos. And he's an interesting character. We don't get a ton of details, but what we get is very intriguing. Uh, and the rest of the New Testament seems to indicate that he remains an influential figure in the early church for the foreseeable future. First, we get just a little bit of biography, right? It says, uh, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Okay. That's interesting. First off, he's Jewish. No surprise there. We've had a lot of Jewish characters. It is the Bible after all, right? Uh, but he's got a very Greek name. And not just neutrally, culturally Greek. He's straight up named after the Greek god of the sun. So his parents may be religious Jews, but they're comfortable in a Greek context. And that makes sense because his family's from Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt, of course. But it's not an Egyptian city, really. It's more European in flavor. It's, it's named after Alexander the Great, who founded it during his conquests. And at this point in history, of course, Egypt is just a part of Rome. Uh, it had been under Rome's thumb since the time of Julius Caesar. If you've ever seen Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra, or more likely, if you've ever watched the movie Cleopatra, if you're into Elizabeth Taylor, and who isn't, let's be honest, then you know the whole history of how Egypt had fallen into Roman hands. In any event, there had long been a Jewish community in Alexandria. Many Jews had moved there under Roman rule. And it's actually where the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, had been translated by a team of Alexandrian Jewish scholars. So basically, the ESV of Jesus' day was an Alexandrian production. So... You have a long-standing Jewish-Greek cultural merger going on in Alexandria. And now that I think about it, this would be a natural location for Mary and Joseph to flee when Jesus was born. It's far enough away to avoid Herod's murder spree, but it had enough Jews there that they could find some sort of a community, even if they didn't know the language. So Apollos is a product of that strongly Hellenistic 
Jewish culture. It's a major cultural hub and a seat of learning. It was the home to the largest library in the world at this time. So he had a lot of access to culture and wisdom. Apollos is not a backwater hick like most of the apostles, in other words. And in fact, he's quite educated. It says he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So he's not just from Alexandria. He has taken advantage of that big library there, maybe. You know, just because you grow up in a college town doesn't make you a scholar. Any more than being born in New Jersey makes you a gardener, or being born in Philadelphia makes you a historian. But Luke clarifies, Paulos, he's not just from Alexandria, he is a model Alexandrian. He's a super knowledgeable guy, not only smart, but eloquent, meaning he can talk real purdy. So he's learned some rhetoric in those Alexandrian schools, but he's also competent in the scriptures. The literal translation is to say he is mighty in the writings. So he's a reader. He really hits the books. And one can infer he is specifically well-versed in his Bible and can probably quote it at length. But he doesn't just know the words, he's mighty in them. So we gather that his eloquence and his competence are connected to each other. He's not just a good student, but a pious one, one who knows his Bible and is passionate about it. So the picture we get of Apollos is that he's a real man of the world. Uh, He's a Greek-speaking Jew with a religious background. He's named for a Greek god, Apollo, the, the god of the sun. He lives in Egypt, which historically worshipped Ra, the sun god, as their highest god. So while Ra and Apollo, they're not exactly equivalent, but they share some of the symbolism at least. And, you know, it's almost like his name is Greek, but with a nod to the Egyptian history of his hometown. So he's whip smart. He's a great speaker. He's immersed in the culture of his day. His parents clearly raised him to have a broad perspective. He's got Jewish roots, a Greek education, an Egyptian upbringing. He knows the Old Testament, and he knows how to talk about it. And then seemingly out of the blue, he leaves home and comes to Ephesus, northward, across the Mediterranean to the province of Asia, western Turkey. Why on earth does he do that? It seems like kind of a random destination. Ephesus is a big city, yes, but... Seriously, why Ephesus? And why why not Rome if he's looking to get to a a political hub? I mean, Athens is an educational hub, right? Jerusalem is a spiritual hub. I mean, for that matter, why go anywhere? Where is he going and why? Well, 25, verse 25 gives us some clue. It says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So... Apollos is not only mighty in the Old Testament, which is the only Bible at this point, he also knows something about Jesus. He knows something about the way of the Lord. So now we realize this trip to Ephesus is a missionary effort. It doesn't necessarily clarify why he chose Ephesus as opposed to any other city, but his purpose in going there is clear. He's going to spread the teachings of Jesus. And we also see his passion. It says he is fervent in the spirit, meaning he's got fire in the belly. And there is a difference between eloquence and fervency. Prince Philip died this week. I'm sure you have seen this by now. I I watched some of the TV coverage online, and it always strikes me, British royalty and the journalists who cover them all speak eloquent English, right? They are very proper and exact in their usage of the English language, unlike me, but that's okay. I expect... English, the English, to maintain standard English, right? That's kind of their job. 
But this is why anyone with a British accent sounds like an expert, right? If you have an English accent and you smoke a pipe, you're pretty much like infallible to the average American, right? <laughs> but while British royals speak eloquent, beautiful English, they are the opposite of fervent. They are calm, they are cool, they are rational and precise. Not Harry and Meghan, I mean the real royals, not the ones that live in Hollywood, the ones in Buckingham Palace, right? And likewise, the flip is also true. You can speak fervently without being eloquent at all, right? Just consider this past year's presidential candidates. No honest person could claim that lack of eloquence is a disqualifier for the presidency. But if you have eloquence and fervency, that's a rare blend. And that's Apollos. He's very gifted. And what's more, he's accurate. And that's important because you could be eloquent and passionate, but also wrong. Not every great speaker speaks truth. Many proficient liars are also natural communicators. I won't drop any names. You can probably fill those in. But according to Luke, Apollos has not only been instructed in the ways of Jesus, but teaches about Jesus with accuracy. He is a rare blend of precision, persuasion, and passion. It's hard to even imagine such a combination because we live today in an age of social media and and YouTube and Spotify where everyone has a microphone and very few deserve one. Truly intelligent, well-spoken, charismatic truth-tellers are rare. They're rare in pulpits. They're rare everywhere. But Apollos was that rare breed. It sounds like Apollos could teach Paul a thing or two, couldn't he? We, we know that Paul is an excellent debater. Uh, we know he has learned to be more of a pastor, though that wasn't his first initial strength. Uh, he's also not afraid to make a speech, but he gets mixed reviews depending on the city, right? And, and Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, look, I didn't come to you with eloquent speech. He's clearly aware of this distinction between himself and Apollos. He's clearly looking at Apollos as the superior speaker. Apollo sounds like a natural preacher if ever there was one. He's got a George Whitfield kind of quality to him. Those of you who know anything about George Whitfield, he was the great awakening preacher, uh, a very energetic preacher. Benjamin Franklin, while not a believer, he regularly attended Whitfield's revival meetings and he became Whitfield's friend and even a patron helping to finance his mission. And in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, which is very entertaining, he he tells the story of going to one of these meetings, and he says how he intentionally brought very little money in his pocket because he didn't want to be guilted into making a large donation. And he says as he listened to the sermon, he eventually decided, all right, I'll give him some of the copper in my pocket. And as the sermon went on, he decided to give all the copper. And then eventually he decided, I'm going to give him all the silver too. And by the end of the sermon, he was asking his neighbors if he could borrow money from them so that he could give more because he was ashamed of how little he had brought. (laughs) Franklin was once asked by another friend why he supported Whitfield. He said to him, like, look, you don't believe in anything he says. And he said, I know, but he does. That's a rare gift and a powerful speaker, a once in a generation kind of gift. And that was Whitfield in the 1700s. And apparently that was Apollos in the first century. Uh, He outshines even Paul as a speaker. So Apollos is the complete package. Or is he? Luke already hints at a deficiency. Apollos only knows the baptism of John. That's a strange way to word things, isn't it? 
But this is a strange time in the history of God's people because things are kind of changing and shifting. Jacob was asking me this week about people in New Testament times who believed in the God of Israel and in a coming Messiah but hadn't heard about Jesus yet. That's a good question. In many ways, Apollos is in a similar kind of situation. Now, Apollos has heard of Jesus, but he's apparently not heard everything. He has a pretty firm grasp of what Jesus taught, but he only knows the baptism of John. Now, we can infer a few things from this statement. One is that Apollos, while he is a native of Alexandria, was not unfamiliar with the promised land of his ancestors. He's close enough that he probably has been to Jerusalem many times. Certain festivals required attendance at the temple to properly celebrate them, like Passover and and Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. Uh, Alexandria is about 350 miles from Jerusalem. I'm guessing they didn't go there for everything, but I'll bet they went there at least annually. So he knows Jerusalem, and he knows Judea. And I think we can assume that he knows John's baptism by personal experience. So maybe his parents took him to John's outdoor revival meetings, And he remembers the crazy guy who eats bugs. And he would remember his powerful sermons at the Jordan River, and he probably was deeply influenced by John's style. I know I imitate guys that I grew up hearing without even thinking about it. I'm sure Apollos did the same. So he was apparently baptized by John in a sign of repentance, and he was aware growing up that John had proclaimed a coming kingdom and that repentance was necessary. But we can also say that by extension, if Apollos has believed John's message and truly understood it, then he would have also welcomed the messages of Jesus, right? And he had become a disciple of Jesus, beginning with his baptism by John. So what's missing? I think we could get into a very detailed discussion of what made John's baptism distinct from baptism as we know it in the church today, but suffice it to say that at the very least, Apollos doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus, He knows repentance is called for. He knows that John's baptism symbolized repentance, and he knows what Jesus taught. The things concerning Jesus is what he knows. So which baptism is he missing? Well, I would say it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which means, by deduction here, that while Apollos is aware of what Jesus taught, he doesn't know necessarily everything that Jesus did. There's a gap in his knowledge here. Apollos knows what Jesus talked about in his ministry, but he apparently has no awareness of what happened at Pentecost some 20 years before this time. So somewhere along the line, Apollos lost track of the story, and the natural question to ask, therefore, is when? If he's not aware of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, that leaves you questioning, is he aware of the resurrection? I'm kind of inclined to say no, because if he knew Jesus was alive, he would probably have heard about the ascension and what happened to Jerusalem at Pentecost. If I had to guess, it seems like Apollos might be a Palm Sunday believer. Maybe one of those faces in the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. But it's also possible that the last he heard was that Jesus had been executed and then they went home. Maybe he's heard rumors of the resurrection, but he might not know what it means. And it's entirely possible that he is on the road promoting the teachings of Jesus without even knowing where Jesus is right now. This is all very interesting to me. I I almost preached this passage on Palm Sunday for this very reason. What it says to me is that Jesus was such a compelling teacher and leader that people are drawn to him even when they don't know what his life and death mean. 
And we know this is true because it still rings true. Lots of people claim to follow the teachings of Jesus, even if they don't affirm any of his miracles, the resurrection, the ascension, or the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' sympathizers are abundant, even as true disciples are rare. And it's hard to know where Apollos was on that spectrum and what exactly he saw his mission to be. Is he trying to convince people that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of creation? Or is it more likely that he's on a goodwill mission advocating Jesus as a great thinker and philosopher who we all could learn a few lessons from? We don't really know the answer to that question with any specificity. We do know that the missing pieces are big enough that it raises red flags for the believers who are listening, namely Priscilla and Aquila, as verse 26 says. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There is a wealth of wisdom in that one verse. Remember that Priscilla and Aquila had moved to Ephesus on Paul's return voyage to Antioch. Until now, they are the original Christian missionaries living in this city. A small church group is maybe forming, but they're still attached to the synagogue, apparently. So imagine they're surprised to hear somebody walk in. A complete stranger just shows up and starts promoting Jesus. That's an amazing coincidence. Except with God, there are no coincidences. But Apollo shows up never having met Paul, not even knowing the full story of Jesus apparently, and yet here he is giving eloquent speeches in the synagogue defending his teachings. You probably could have knocked Priscilla and Aquila over with a feather. But in the midst of his speech, they finally they, they realize he's missing some vital pieces of the puzzle, and they go from missionary mode to discipleship mode. And notice how they handle this. What they don't do is dress Apollos down in front of everybody. They take him aside and fill him in. He is not decried as a heretic. He is shepherded into a more accurate understanding of the truth. It never becomes a public debate. They are very subtle and they are very gentle. I wish some of these reformed Facebook groups would take notes. But they also don't allow his obvious gifting to gloss over the fact that his theology is lacking. It is always tempting to overlook the flaws in a gifted person, isn't it? When you're rooting for someone to do well, it's very hard to hear them criticized. If you were ever a young sports fan, you know this well. It took me many years to accept that most of my Phillies heroes of my youth were on steroids. It was the 90s, what can I say? Darren Dalton did me dirty. But we do this in ministry settings too. The stories of great church leaders who have fallen in disgrace, too many to count. And each one is a tragedy. Some have moral failures, some become more heretical over time, but every one of those failures has in common that they could have used some proper discipling on the way. Someone should have taken them aside much sooner and addressed some of these issues. And how often do we hear that once a ministry has collapsed, people near the situation say they should have said something sooner. Now, Apollos is not immersed in a moral scandal, but his teaching is incomplete. It would lead his listeners into more confusion than clarity is the concern. And Priscilla and Aquila, to their credit, they don't let his obvious talents cloud their judgment or sparkle them so that they decide to turn a blind eye. Instead, they tackle the problem right away. But... They also don't let Apollos' ignorance invalidate his gifts. 
his potential is still there. His gifts will still be useful to the kingdom. Saying he needs some training and correction is not a dismissal. It doesn't deny his God-given talents. They're not trying to sink him or drive him out of the church. Priscilla and Aquila look at Apollos and they don't see a problem. They see an opportunity. They don't panic and they don't treat him as a pariah. They just want to get him back on track. This is iron sharpening iron. And they don't take a back seat just because they have no formal authority over Apollos. Because you have to remember, there's no formal church here yet. Aquila is not an elder. He is not a pastor, and obviously neither is Priscilla. The Ephesian church is still in its infancy. It has no officers. Does that stop them from bringing this guy in for a cup of coffee and some counseling? No. Which makes the broader point that discipling is the job of every Christian. It is not the exclusive task of the elders. Wives can disciple their husbands. Older children can disciple younger children. You all can disciple me. Every Christian requires accountability and has room to grow. Discipleship is not a one-way street. I may have authority as your pastor, but I am not above correction. I'm not infallible. And me and and all the elders, we need the occasional encouragement and, when necessary, gentle, respectful correction. And that's how Apollos receives it. Charismatic leaders don't always like being corrected, but he takes this remarkably well, doesn't he? Some years ago, I remember saying something very stupid while I was leading Sunday school at New Life Church. I was not an officer in that church, but I was promptly and immediately corrected in front of the group, but very gently by a man who had formerly been an elder but was retired from the session. He's a very kind man. And I felt extremely stupid. And I was much more careful in the future. But this man and his wife, while much smarter and more mature in their faith than me, were not trying to belittle me. In fact, he spent the rest of that Sunday school hour gently restoring me by affirming me more aggressively when I wasn't making mistakes. (laughs) But he and his wife, they were always so good to me. They provided me with good counsel over the years. They gave feedback on my sermons. They prayed for Georgia and I, and a few times prayed with us. And they were a large part, actually, of getting me in the door here by giving me completely unsolicited endorsements when some of the search committee visited. They were like my Priscilla and Aquila. They coached me, they helped me, and then they sent me out. And that's basically how things play out for Apollos, as we see. It says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So ultimately, we have Apollos going back to Achaia, meaning Athens and, and Corinth, Uh, He's doubling back over Paul's territory, finishing his puzzle while Paul is over in Galatia. The nerve of some guys. First he steals the spotlight in Ephesus, and then he builds on Paul's foundation in Achaia. You've got to wonder how Paul's feeling about this. And and now, this is the only time we're going to hear from Apollos for the rest of Acts. He's like a free agent, not part of the same agency, but working the same territory throughout the remainder of Paul's ministry. And and he and Apollos will crisscross each other's paths, but we get no up-close picture of their work together. Although they did certainly meet later in his letter to Titus, 
Uh, Paul actually asks Titus to send Apollos his way. But more importantly, we know that Paul does not see Apollos as a problem. I want you to just hear what he says of Apollos throughout his letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, a running summary. Chapter 1, verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Chapter 3, verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Chapter 3, verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Chapter 4, verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. It sure seems to me like Paul bears no grudge against Apollos. There is no room for rivalry in the kingdom of God. The church grows in many ways, and everyone has a role, and it is wisdom to know what that role is without resenting each other. And maybe it means teaching, maybe it means encouraging others to be leaders, maybe it means discipling your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe it means letting others finish what you started. Because the fact is, the only one who has a right to finish anything is the same one who announced it was finished on Calvary. As Pastor Green mentioned this morning, he's really our pastor. He's the author. He's the finisher. He just chooses to work through us. But ultimately, Jesus is building his church. Just consider this. Apollos didn't know the baptism of the Spirit, and yet he was fervent in the Spirit before he even knew the Spirit. Which shows yet again that the Spirit doesn't need us. The Spirit of Christ is active well before anyone knows to be even looking for him. Everywhere we go, he's already there. And if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, then he surely owns the gifted speaker from Alexandria and a kingdom-minded couple in Ephesus or a teacher in Allentown or a plumber in Emmaus or a mechanic in New Jersey or a nurse in Bethlehem or a ditch digger in Sailorsburg. He has people everywhere all over the Lehigh Valley. The kingdom is playing out on a giant chessboard, and God has a lot of pieces on the board that we don't even know about. Not only should this not lead to rivalry, we should take comfort in it because we can't do everything. LVPC can't be all things to all people. We're not going to reach every community or speak every language, and we can't be in all places at once. But we can preach the gospel where we are, where God has put us, knowing that God will fill in the gaps. Because ultimately, it's his puzzle and not ours. And he can build it whenever and wherever he likes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you as always for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that you are on the move in places and in ways that we can't begin to fathom. That you are pulling things seemingly out of the blue to build your kingdom.
in the last places we would look for it. Not because as an organization we tried harder or had a great plan, but because you just do that. You are active apart from us. You are active in us as well, and we thank you for making us a part of this. But Lord, help us to have humility. Lord, strike rivalry from our hearts. Give us humility as we serve you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.